What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. I'm your host, David Michael, and the weather is not so great today, so joining me remotely is Trip Turlington and Tony DeSero. How are you guys doing? Good, man. How are you? Thanks. Good, good, good. Yeah, thanks for jumping in. Uh, it was getting a little sketchy out there, so uh, we're trying this online call thing to uh, uh, answer these questions that we've got from some of our listeners from the Facebook community group, which you can get to by going to passionatedj.com slash community. We did an Ask Me Anything post and said, hey, anything you want to know, post them here and we'll respond to them on the show. And so here we are. And uh, so I just want to go ahead and jump right into it. Those of you watching on the YouTube audience, uh, you'll be able to see us talking here and uh, see the questions here on the screen. You can join us at youtube.com slash passionate DJ. You fellas ready to do this? Let's go. Yes, sir. All right. So here is the first question. This comes from Giacomo R., he says, vinyl, we're seeing a strong return of the physical support for the music. For a beginner DJ, is it still worth it? Does it still represent an added value from the point of view of club managers, people, fans, etc.? So what do you guys think? Is it worth it for a new DJ to get into vinyl? In my opinion, I think a DJ should always learn from vinyl. Um, it's the hardest form. It's the beginning steps of DJing. Um, as far as a club manager, I don't think they give two pisses or a fart. <laughs> Agreed. You think they should, just to clarify, you think they should learn vinyl? You, did you mean that you think they should start with vinyl even before no, they touching? Learn. They, they start how they start. Vinyl is obviously um, a pretty penny, you know, with yeah. all things included. But um, I think eventually they should, yes. I think, yeah, I think that's where I'm at with it. Like, I, do I think it's still, it's still a, a very relevant and um, uh, worthwhile thing to learn uh, just because it is like Tony mentioned, it's, it's the fundamentals of it, right? Like, I mean, it doesn't get any more raw than two pieces of wax and a mixer and you bringing those two things together. Um, but as a new DJ, uh, I would be far more impressed with somebody who is able to uh, learn the fundamentals in whatever way that they can and then maybe branch out into uh, vinyl or uh, uh, what's the, the finger drumming or whatever the more advanced or how, whatever branch you want to go out to. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about it before where, you know, is beat matching a necessity you know, right. not, not from a manual standpoint, like it, it, that's just not where DJing is anymore. Is it a worthwhile thing? Absolutely. That's exactly where I land. I was exactly the parallel I was going to draw. It's, it's really easy to talk about, uh, you know, mixing vinyl and beat matching in the, in the same uh, paragraph here. Right. And yeah, same thing. Um, it's a worthwhile pursuit for sure, because it lets you learn the music in a, do I want to say more intimate way? that uh that you just don't get when you're definitely when you're hitting the sync button i mean right. there's just a certain sort of organic flow to the way that music manually moves and adjusting it with your hands and all that kind of stuff that i don't know it just gives you a context that i think you don't otherwise get i would um it, it's pretty hard to because vinyl and turntables are just not as accessible as they used to be right not everybody has them i mean back in the day i I don't say every DJ, but 90% of the people that played out had a set of tech 12s and a mixer and 12 inches. Now, you know, it's, it's rare to see turntables in people's houses. 
unless they've had them from the past. It's hard to justify buying them when nobody else has them. So it's kind of like, where else are you going to do this vying? But yeah, it's it's kind it's almost like a solo pursuit mm-hmm. at this point. Yep. I would definitely say if you have the opportunity to and the access to turntables, yeah, definitely learn. Yep, same. Okay, let's move on to our next question from Jackson F. See if I can get, whoops, I'm going to get this off the screen here. This is specifically for Tony. How do you figure out what you're willing to pay when you're booking talent? I've heard rough numbers like 50% of expected ticket sales. Is there any insight to guidelines such as that? It would be appreciated. Tony, what do you think? How do you figure out what you're willing to pay some incoming talent for a big show? Um, well, first of all, I have to look at it like I'm a D market. I'm not a major market, so I can't, there's no way I can pay what New York city or Miami or LA or Chicago pay for a DJ. Um, I have to look at how many tickets that DJ I think can sell me. Um, can he sell me 400 tickets at $20? Can he sell me 400 tickets at $30? Um, Dayton's kind of a small market, so um, <clears throat> but when I go into the booking, I have to look at it like um, if I spend 10 grand on an artist, you know, I'm going to have another at least $1,500 in additional costs. So 11.5 would be my overall. Will I be able to sell 11.5 worth of tickets? Now, if I do that, that's not going to equate to the time that I put into throwing the show either. So do I want to pay myself, you know? Um, there's a lot of things I take into consideration. There's some, <clears throat> there are some deals that you can do when you do book DJs because some of these DJs and agents know that the artist is going to sell out an, an event, you know, if it's three to a 5,000 capacity venue and that artist is, you know, consistently selling out those type of venues. There's sometimes where the artist will take 90% of ticket sales, mm. you know, um, <clears throat> But, you know, it's, there's a million ways to do it, but I don't, I won't ever go into a deal giving 50% of my ticket sales away. There's no way I have way too many additional costs and hours promoting the show and paying for, um, openers, you know, (laughs) hotel rooms, food, writer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My my wife's a realtor and she whenever she's kind of looking at how to put a price on a house, she looks at comps, you know, she looks at comparable houses in the area and says, Okay, this one's very similar to this property and it sold for this much and they use that to come to some conclusion. Uh, but when it comes to an event like this, you know, setting prices is very locale specific. And like you you know, like you said to your point in Dayton you can't charge the same you would charge for New York or whatever. So um, are you really just flying blind? Because if you have a bunch of comps in your area, it's probably not worth bringing them here. You know what I mean? If you've, if some, if somebody has been here five times in the you know past year, then that's a lot of data to work with, but it's just going to trend down. So right. are you flying blind? Do you try to look at other like comparable markets that are further away? How do you, aim that or do you just have a feel for that because you've done this for so long i just have a feel for it because for it because i've done it for so long i just know that um let me think of an artist that i eric prids okay um we'll put eric prids in columbus 
Eric Prids will put a thousand people in a building that'll probably spend, you know, $30 a ticket and spend hefty numbers on alcohol because it's a, it's a very big VIP market as well. You know, people love the bottle service. Um, So there's, if I was to have him here in Dayton, I think I'd have a good turnout, but would I get a thousand people? I highly doubt it. Hmm. Will I be able to rely on $20,000 worth of VIP bottle sales and ticket sales in Dayton? I highly doubt it. You know, so I have to look at it as I don't, I can't even compare Columbus to the market. I mean, Dayton is, is a D market. It's a very small market, but we do, you know, the club that we have and the few names that we've brought has helped us um, be able to obtain, obtain other names. But um, I just go into it blind to pretty much answer your question. I try and get a good guesstimate. There's times where I, um, I know I've overpaid for a couple artists, you know, but yeah. I mean, you live and learn. Yeah. I guess you just have to learn to probably trust yourself. Like, Hey, I've done this a number of times. I have a <clears throat> record that shows I can do it right <laughs> this amount of time and you give yourself a margin of error and cause you're never going to get it right a hundred percent of the time, obviously. So it's somewhere between uh, educated guessing and analyzing past data, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And, and knowing the fact that those artists have never played this market um, and they want to dip into another market where they haven't to get their name out. And sometimes they'll, they'll play the market for a cheaper price just to do that. You know? Mm, so yeah. I take that into consideration as well. Sometimes. We'll go to the next question here. This one comes from Jordan R. Um, he says he wants to hear my views on the new Akai force. Is it a game changer? Can I trash my Mac yet? Now he later posted in the comments. Uh, sorry, I saw you just covered this in the AM episode. And he hadn't watched it yet, uh, but I'll go ahead and answer this one really quickly. Uh, the Akai force is really cool. I didn't get a lot of hands-on time with it. I got to like feel it, push the buttons. You know, it's really high quality. Looks great. It's glossy. It's a great, great finish. It's all, it's all the things. Um, it looks really neat. It makes really great sounds and it's really nice to have something that's, uh, seems comparable to like my machine studio that's in the background. Um, but is an entirely standalone hardware unit. So, you know, standalone was really a theme at NAM this year. It's really a theme in, uh, the hardware industry when it comes to DJing and production. Finally! Are, are interested <laughs> in getting out of the, the, the top case. So, uh, it looks really awesome. I wish I could give a better answer as far as like, you know, I haven't spent an hour creating tunes on it or anything. Uh, but I saw some really freaking cool tech demos and uh, hit up that YouTube, YouTube channel if you want to see more of those. Um, I don't know if you guys checked out the Akai Force at all, if you have any thoughts on that. I haven't checked it out. It's it's pretty cool. You guys should. It's, uh, it's pretty neat. It's more of like uh, somewhere in between and DJing, like I said, kind of like the Machine Studio. So for, I, I bet Trip would have a lot of fun with it as a, a DJ producer. Say, yeah, I was gonna say like I haven't had a chance to check it out yet, but I also, but I've I've played around with a lot of Akai stuff. I mean, it just goes without saying that the, their their build quality is amazing. Um, I still have the Push One, uh, which was actually for oh, yeah. Ableton that was actually made by Akai before Ableton took over their own production. So. Um, yeah, no, I, but I, I, I really do like that the, everything is starting to finally listen to 
um, all of our gripes over the years. Uh, you know, can I ditch my laptop? Can I ditch my laptop? Um, right. So it's, it's nice that they're starting to listen. All right. Are you guys ready to get real for a second? Oh, boy. right this next one comes from Corey s he says production of this show is there a profit in there or is it completely (laughs) a labor of love what makes you do what you do how much would you say you've invested in the show since day one should i start or do you want to get you guys want to jump in on that one um you go ahead and start because i think uh I, i think from your position you've got the most uh uh, insight from from this point of view because uh, passionate DJ is so much more than just this show. Yeah, so, you've had more time invested. Okay, um, so, but I would like to augment it. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, is there a profit in there? Um, we do sell merch. We do. Um, we're creating advertising packages. We do have Patreon. Uh, we do affiliate marketing. We're pretty much open on all the ways that we try to monetize this show. As far as the word profit, that's going to depend on how you define that. Um, have we made more money than has been invested? I'd say that's a pretty hard no. Um, so yes, it is a labor of love for sure. However, it cannot remain entirely a labor of love if we want to grow it beyond where we're at. So we are making a really hard push to try to find ways to monetize the show in a way that lets us keep doing, you know, keep passionate DJ what it is and keep giving the listeners what it is that you guys like from our show, from the YouTube channel, from the articles and trying to find, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, how can we turn these into, you know, useful informational products or, you know, how can we sell, uh, you know, space to advertisers that align with our values. We're having a lot of discussions right now in that vein uh, because 2018, we did a lot of cool stuff. We, you know, made a lot of great episodes. We built out the YouTube channel. We grew a lot, uh, but we had a lot of struggles. It was really hard to uh, just donate all this time to this thing. And so, this is a constant topic of discussion uh, amongst me and the guys here. And I hope I'm not oversharing there, but I like to be transparent about that stuff. Yeah. Um, what makes you do what you do? Um, I mean, we so Passionate DJ has been around since 2013, 2014. Um, it's because we're passionate about DJing. I mean, I know that's a really simple answer, but um, I don't want to speak for the guys, but I love DJing. I love creating content. Only makes sense to create content about DJing. It basically comes down to that. Um, it gives me an outlet very similar to DJing itself to kind of, I always say word vomit out a bunch of stuff that somebody out there seems to want to listen to. And so there's something therapeutic in that being able to get behind this microphone and talk to you guys and have somebody listen and seem to care uh, really fulfills me personally. And then the final part was how much would you say you've invested into the show? Oh man. Um, It's really hard to say on that one because it's been going on for so long and some of it's kind of blurry, right? Like how much of this is a passionate DJ expense and how much of this is just me buying something. Uh, You know, like I bought a pretty expensive MacBook recently, which I bought because I needed it for video editing for passionate DJ, but I also use it for everything. So that being said, um, thousands, I mean, we've got uh, headsets, we've got mixers, uh, we don't, you know, I don't consider all the DJ gear that we buy necessarily for our own use as a passionate DJ expense, but we do buy 
stuff to shoot video of them and get recordings of them. We've got microphones, XLR cables, not to mention the entire renovation I did to the studio, which cost a couple grand uh, just to make it to my studio when we were recording out of here. Yeah, exactly. And I was just getting to get ready to, to say that the upgrades to your studio, uh, the um, audio interfaces that you had to buy, the second set of mics. And so, you know, we've all made investments like that into the show, which is another reason why we're having talks about how to monetize this while still keeping it a passion project. Yep. And that's my big spiel on it. You guys are welcome to uh, chime in there. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head with all of the labor of love uh, discussion. So I won't go too far uh, back over that. Um, I think, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, I think coming back to what makes you do what you do though. Um, I, you know, as somebody who's been doing this um, since the late nineties, um, you know, I'm over 40 years old. Um, I still love to play out and all of that stuff, but you know, in just about everything that I do, um, what I have found is that when I, when I am good at something and when I find other people that want to be good at it or that I connect with on that level, um, it, it's, it's a pretty cool experience to, uh, want to share that information and, and share my experience and try to help the next generation along or, or even if it's somebody the same age as me, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's that handoff, you know, to, to help grow somebody else who is also passionate about, um, about wanting to learn. And, and so trying to get people up to my level or uh, way beyond my level and, 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 you know, just kind of knowledge sharing as we go along. That's how, that's how all of this keeps going. So, you know, even though I might only play out half a dozen times a year, um, but if I can, you know, instill something that I've learned into some kid who's playing out three times a week and it helps him get him or her get better, well, then that's all worth it to me. You know, that's the same type of stuff that I'm hoping to pass on to my kids, you know, regardless of what it is that they get passionate about, you know, be – uh, be willing to learn from other people and then be willing to share what you've learned with others. That's a great answer. Uh, anything you want to add on that one, uh, Tony? Um, so is there a profit? Is this a labor of love? What makes you do this? How much have you invested? It's, it's definitely, um, definitely a labor of love as we all agree on that. Um, what makes me do what I do? Um, I'm on the same wave as trip. I, I, um, I love sharing knowledge and the things that I know. And I, I've, I've always wanted to teach people, you know, um, I did it with gymnastics a long time ago and I've always, I, I like to be an inspiration and, um, the knowledge that I can share as well from going, being a DJ since, you know, 1990. 91 to now managing an act being a stage manager just know that I took that path but that path led me to where I am and these are things that I can also talk about within the DJ community because it's all relevant you know um, I just I like sharing I, I love sharing the knowledge that I know and the things that I've learned along the way to hopefully you know help others um, invested into this how much I would have to honestly say, you know, all of our knowledge combined is priceless. You know, I can't put a dollar amount on, on any of that. Um, and it doesn't bother me to share that knowledge, you know, um, because it's real life okay. knowledge that you're just not going to 
be able to pick up a book and read the directions to, you know? So right. I yeah. feel like, I feel like, you know, what we have all put into this is priceless and, you know, we're going to keep going because we believe in this project. And I think that's a, to piggyback on that, you know, I think when you first read that question, my, my mind immediately went to the, the financial investment, which is where you took it, David. Um, but, um, you know, to piggyback on, on Tony's point there, I mean, the amount of time uh, that gets invested as well is, is, um, is it, this, when we call this a labor of love, I mean, the, the amount of time that it goes into just even a 60 to 75 minute uh, episode, um, you know, the, the amount of post-production and editing and all of that stuff that was especially going on in those early to mid episodes up until what, about six months ago, um, yeah. roughly, uh, we made when some we monetary investments to make that easier. <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, yeah, some monetary investments as well as some, uh, some workflow, um, some workflow changes. So I think that's, um, one of the good things about, um, about growing like we have is that we've figured out, you know, where we need to improve and all of that. But, you know, as you're making those, uh, as you're crawling to learn how to walk, you know, like, so uh, the amount of time to get to a 60 minute, but we'll just call it 60 minutes. It was probably easily anywhere between, you know, what would you say? 75 to 90 minutes of recording time for each one. Uh, so the time to set everything up and then the time to tear everything down after you've recorded that, then take it back into the studio. And then yep. uh, you practically have to listen to the whole thing over again. And every time you make an edit, then you got to go back and listen to make sure that you've cut and pasted everything back together. Then you, if you're anal retentive like me, then you've gone through and you've applied compression on every individual channel and EQing everybody so that everything sounds even, then spreading everybody out across the stereo field and then do, you know, your final, you know, mastering and stuff like that to get to that final product. Um, so, you know, it, it was, it, it, it's, there, there's a lot of time. And then that's just the production side of it. Then there's the whole planning side of it. How do we figure out what we're going to talk about? Right. And then, you know, trying to, you know, come up with the outlines and whatever our talking points or, and how much of it is evergreen content that we can just, you know, kind of plan it and then stick it up on the shelf versus the stuff that, holy crap, fire Festival just screwed over a bunch of people. We got to talk about it now, you <laughs> yeah. know? So like, you know, there's all that kind of stuff that like, it, it, it's, it's a constant moving target, but uh, it does, it, it, it takes a significant investment of time as well as your money. Okay, next up on the list, we have a question from Matthew M. I played live for over six hours this weekend, and there were multiple intoxicated dancers that were banging things and making so much noise that I couldn't hear in my headphones, monitor, or even hear the PA to correct the pitch during mixing. What do other DJs do when things like this are happening? You ever guys ever play a gig where things were so noisy and crazy around you that you couldn't even hear or concentrate? Yes. Mostly yep. in house parties, yep, for sure. But like yep. in a in a room, like a a big room, not not really. I just turn the monitors up. 
turn my headphones. Say either they didn't provide enough sound or security. (laughs) (laughs) Something's going wrong here. Yeah, no, same. I, I think most of the time when something like that has happened, it's because it's it, it it's either inadequate uh, monitoring, um, or yeah, like, lack of security. So there's somebody like right there in your and all of that. But I would have an issue, David, playing you know right there in your room with the monitor far over to the left side, away from me, and not by my ears. And when yeah. you know there were, we'd have. 40 50 people in the room you know like having a good time drinking and talking so yeah it's definitely hard in that environment but right in a, in a club environment i don't think i've ever had that issue Mm-mm. i don't think i have either nope um as far as how how would i handle it um i mean it's it, it's real easy to say you know just be calm and just like you know take care of your stuff and be professional but it's, i mean it's admittedly very tough when you've got drunk people getting crazy around your shit. Right. So, um, I mean, it's the best I can say is just try to keep your stuff together and know who you're going to work with in the future. You know, was this a venue issue? Was this a promoter issue? Why did this happen in the first place? Take that as a learning experience and run with that. Um, and use that as a data point. Yeah. Cause I mean, even like, that that sounds like it was a perfect storm because like even in in club environments that have had you know some shitty monitoring systems or whatever like i've always at least been able to say okay i can't hear accurate uh information around me because there's no monitors and there's you know reverb and bounce back from the main system at least i know i can put headphones on and be and and I can mix in my headphones. I don't like to do that, but I can do it. And, and that's my go-to if I have to. But if he can't even hear in his headphones because people are so loud, like that's, that sounds like that's a problem. I wouldn't take that gig again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was exactly why I started mixing in headphones was scenarios like that where I was like, I just couldn't, I'm not really sure. It's a little foggy. Oh, wait, my, this is always consistent if I have something over my ears, you know? Right, right. Um, if it's breaking through that, yikes. Yeah, it becomes tricky. All right, we've got, let's see. Uh, By the way, real quick before we move on to the next question, uh, we just did all that talk about production quality and stuff. Are you guys getting occasional uh, network glitches? Yeah, at the beginning I was, but I haven't in a minute. Yeah, it's it's gotten better as we've gotten along. Okay, you guys are doing that for me as well occasionally, but it's not so bad that it's unlistenable, so I just wanted to see how it was for me. Okay. I don't know if that's, maybe that's just my connection here, but all right. Next up, this comes from Aaron K. I'm looking for advice on how to organize my music on USB stick without using playlists, record box, iTunes, or anything else just by using folders and subfolders. Mm. Trip, I feel like you have input on that one. Um, we've, yeah. we've had some conversations about this because you and I both used to obsess over file level storage and organization of files. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if you still do or not. Um, no, I've started to, uh, in the last few years, I've really started to trust uh, or be more trusting um, of metadata, which is what mm-hmm. all of those things uh, use as, as the metadata and the ID3 tags and uh, some XML, external XML, XML files and stuff like that um, for library management. Uh, most of them are, are, are good. Um, you know, there's some glitches if you're like, uh, I've ran into issues with Serato before where if you're trying to 
do a mass block of, you know, 200 songs and you want to change the tag on all 200. Sometimes it might miss a couple of them, but um, for a USB stick, I guess it just depends on how, on how anal retentive you want to get with it. Like any more for me, um, what I basically keep on my, uh, on my USB sticks is anything that I've played from the last three to six gigs. So, um, and with that, then I just break them up into, this is the stuff for main sets in one folder, you know, so it, like, this is where I, I'm my go-to for, if I'm going to play techno, this is my techno folder. And then I'll have like other like subfolder or not subfolders, but like other folders in that same route, you know, so I can have like a tech folder or a prog folder, or if I'm going drum and bass, then I can go, you know, neuro, uh, uh, neurofunk or you know tech step and stuff like that and you know kind of break things out that way um, but then outside of that I mean that's pretty much all I really do um, you know just kind of have genre folders yeah. uh, and then just dump everything in that but again that's because I've, I've been using record box a lot more for library management so when I plug into a, a set of CDJs like that's all I, that's all I need to do is pull up a playlist I would say my perspective on this, um, like I said, I used to I used to be really particular about my file naming schemes and all this kind of stuff, and I still am in certain situations. But as far as it relates to music, um, basically the only time I buy or acquire music files anymore is for the purpose of DJing, and so for everything else, I'm using Spotify or it's something that I already had from way back in the day as an mp3 file or maybe it's a dj set or something that's not available on spotify something like that recording um independent release from friend whatever have that stuff um but i can't say i've done a great job of organizing it uh but when i used to really obsess over this i i strictly went uh i think i organized by folder uh the artist and then i put the inside those folders i would put the artist name space hyphen space mm. uh, track title you know dot mp3 mp3 or whatever and i didn't get any fancier than that because i found that if i would try to break it into anything more specific or try to categorize stuff then i'm just adding a whole nother layer of convolution to my process and then i'm like is this deep house or is this like deep techno or is this like techie dub blah 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 whatever and i didn't want to get lost in that when i'm organizing thousands of files right um but now that I'm only really getting new music files for the purpose of DJing, I dump it into my DJ software and do what I'm going to do with it in Tractor or Rekordbox or whatever. Uh, when I finally get to the point of like dusting off all my old hard drives that have old shit on it and putting it all in one place, honestly, anymore, I'll probably put it in some kind of library management thing like iTunes because who wants to do that after a while? I mean, it just gets ridiculous right. whether right. you're using, you know, renaming macros or programs to help you out or anything. Uh, it's, it's so tedious anymore. It's, it's so 1997. There are better ways to do it. That's just my opinion. Yeah. And, and that's a bit, so it, talk about a flash from the past, man. Um, so I did the same thing, but I had two different ways of going about my, my folder management and I had my not stuff that I'm DJing and stuff that I'm DJing. So like all of my like listening, um, 
you know, everything else that I would never, ever play out. So like all of my rock, all of my alternative, all of my rap, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, at the root, I would have, you know, those very you know, broad genres. So rock, alternative, uh, rap, whatever. And then once you got into there, then um, I would do artist. And then once you get into the artist, then I would, <laughs> I would put the year space dash space then the uh the album name and then uh down in there then have them all you know track number dash uh, space dash uh, yeah. <laughs> Tony, all the stuff that id3 tags and metadata was invented to right fit. exactly <laughs> exactly so um for all of my djing stuff it was always just because i i exactly i didn't ever want to go into that so i had folders for all of my genres um, and I never got too specific. I had like techno, tech house, um, progressive, trance, drum and bass, uh, breaks, you know, so just very, I kept my genres pretty broad. Um, and then once you're in there, then it was just artist name, space, hyphen space, track name. And then if it was a remix of any kind, it was in parentheses afterward. And then that, that's just how I managed those. Um, because yeah, I mean, to your point, like for stuff that I'm DJing out, I'm trying to find it and find it quick. Um, yeah. so if I know my music, then, you know, I know who it, uh, something is by and what, or what the track name is and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, anymore, I can't see myself doing, it. I don't have the time for that. And, and, and library management has gotten really good at it. I use mostly tractor all the time. Um, the last, uh, I'd say three times that I played on CDJs, it was just techno tech house and progressive. And in each one, it would have lighter and darker. And that was it. You know, yeah. I knew my light stuff was more, you know, melody driven atmospheric and my darker stuff was, you know, my more underground, darker, minimal but there's no particular method to your madness as far as the files that are outside of tractor or record box. Like you just, no, I, well, it, outside of tractor and record yeah. box. Yeah. It's, I'm like a fucking hoarder. <laughs> 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 but, um, no, I have, I have a music folder and then music I have year. So okay. I have, you know, 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016. And then within the year, the genres, you know, gotcha. but when I'm going to play a gig, you know, I, I'll either download new music before the gig or if it's music that I already have that I feel, is, you know, I put it in the appropriate folder. But on the USB drive when I'm playing out, yeah, it's pretty simple. It's just the three, the three genres that I normally play anyway, you know, when I play a gig and, yeah. you know, lighter, yeah. darker. And so my whole process now is like, yeah, I've what I do now is in a uh, in a music folder on on my PC. I just you know I have the date that I make the purchase and all of the songs that you know come in from that date. So you know if today is what the third, so you it's know three three buddy. All right, yeah. <laughs> so uh, happy three o three. So if so if I make you know purchases today that's what goes into that folder then i take those i run them through platinum notes and then i dump everything that's been compressed by 
uh, Platinum Notes in one Platinum Notes folder and then library management does the rest. So for somebody who's looking for that like intentional file management from a human, eh, you don't want to see mine anymore. <laughs> like you said, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was very much that guy. I would sit there for hours, you know, s- scrubbing through uh, tracks, but not anymore. I must have lost weeks of my life doing that. Like <laughs> once, you, once you realize that, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> like people invented things to solve this problem. Right, right. All right, next question comes from Adam C. Where's the line between being, a, uh, between being pushy and asking for help? As a newer DJ, I've been asking friends and fellow DJs to listen to mixes. Just want to revisit some best practices for breaking into the scene to get behind the decks in the club. The line between being pushy and asking for help, specifically relating to the, like, listen to my mix, give me feedback, come yeah. to my show. Um, where's the line between being pushy and asking for help? Well, I think that's going to vary, obviously, depending on the relationship with the person that you're interacting with, right? So, um, you know, maybe grandma is going to listen to your mix, but Bob, who you met once at a bar is going to be annoyed if you ask him more than twice. Right. So, um, I don't know, kind of try to pick up on social cues. <laughs> if yeah. somebody's getting annoyed, the closer, you are, the closer you are to the person, the more pushier you can be. You know, yeah. I had a guy, I had a guy add me on Facebook a few weeks ago and we had a lot of mutual friends so I was like, yeah, you know, I accepted the request and I, I, I it takes me a while to accept requests because I have so many in there. I accepted this one and as soon as I accepted it, I got a message with a YouTube video yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I looked at it. I watched the video. I didn't respond to it. And then three weeks later, I got another message with a YouTube video. Well, then I went back to Facebook and hit unfriend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, 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 gotta remember that it's all about that the relationship that you have with people. So if what you're looking for is an inner circle of people that you can have, um, uh, so that you you can get some constructive feedback on how that mix is and do you how to make it better or how to get it out to the right people. That's all about your relationships with those people. Um, so. You know, like to Tony's point there, you, you don't want to just throw uh, YouTube or SoundCloud links into somebody's inbox. You want to try to develop some sort of a relationship and then let that be something that comes up as part of that relationship and, um, and, and something that you can pass off in casual conversation. It's not to say that you can't throw links out to people, but, you know, what, what you don't want to do is, you know, become pushy because somebody you barely know or only know of is not listening to your shit. So, um, my advice there is, is to find, um, that a a tight knit circle of, of people that, you know, you do not only get feedback from, but that you can actually, uh, contribute some feedback to, um, because there's, there's nothing, better than people who are trying to make each other better. So trying to, um, you know, so if, if, if you're looking for feedback and you get somebody who actually listens and, and will provide that feedback to you, then make sure that you are available to provide feedback to that person as well. Um, so that it becomes, you know, a give and take 
relationship. Sometimes too, keep in mind that everybody is constantly busy all the time, you know, yeah. so not a lot of people have yeah. time to listen to the mix. I mean, even my best friend, Brian in Florida, <laughs> you know, God love him. He sent me a mix and he probably had to send me a reminder three or four different times. Like, yo, did you listen to my mix? Oh man, my bad. I forget, you know, but he's my homie, you know? So yeah. Yep. All right. And then uh, part of the question here was, uh, just want to revisit some best practices for breaking into the scene to get behind the decks in the club. And we probably have entire episodes dedicated to that now, but uh, anybody want to give a couple pointers, uh, best practices for uh, getting early gigs? Yep. Uh, Find a local promoter that's doing local nights. Yep. And uh, making sure that you're building that relationship with them and going to their shows and, and showing that support, whether or not you're on the bill or not. Um, you know, one of the, best ways to show that early support or show that support when you're early on is to go and don't even bring up the fact that you're a DJ. Don't even bring up the fact that you're looking for gigs. Just make your face known. You know, just show up. And, uh, and as you're building those relationships with the people that you're trying to get gigs from, then, you know, you'll find those more uh, ample opportunities and more appropriate places to drop that nugget. Oh, here, you know, by the way, I play too. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have one from Scott C. What do you do when you hit a long bridge? Continue working on your beat matching and EQ, take a break, look forward to possible tracks down the line. I occasionally find myself frustrated just waiting for the track to kick back in. <laughs> ah, so long breakdowns and bridges. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I quit playing trance. I mean, it, well, I mean, because we've joked around about it before, but like, I mean, you know, especially as trance kind of started waning in popularity in our area, like that was one of the biggest things is that like, you know, I'm carrying around, you know, these record bags that, you know, hold anywhere from 80 to 100, 120 records. And I'm just cramming this stuff in there so I can plan for whatever. But then when I actually get to a gig, I'm playing 10 <laughs> eight, records. Eight yeah, ten. <laughs> 8 to 10 records, you know. So it was like and, – and that was always the, the frustrating part. And as a younger DJ, you know, a newer DJ – that's why I got the reputation that I did for hitting the flanger button as much as I did because I did. You get bored. You're just sitting there and you're like – all right, how how can I do something or look busy or look cool or whatever? Because if I've already got, you know, three, four records, you know, down the line, you know, as I've turned around, I've got plenty of time. Oh, well, I'll, maybe I'll play this one. Maybe I'll play this one. Maybe I'll play this one. So turn around in my record bag and I've got all these, you know, sleeves popped up. Well, hell, I've planned for three more sets. <laughs> it was also back then a lot harder to – to throw on a record and you i mean you'd have to work the pitch a little bit to get your record right as right. to where now you look at a screen you know 125 bpm you put your pitch control or hit the sync button so now there's next to no no planning time you know you don't have to to do any of that right and this problem is worst for people who have the smallest crowds right because if you're standing in front of 10 people doing nothing for a minute and a half you look even worse than <laughs> you do if there's 300 adoring fans because at least somebody's like woo giving you the hands air thing or something's happening hopefully right uh so i mean for me um my best answer to that is deck d <laughs> 
And what I mean is I almost always have a third or fourth deck that I have something in uh, that has some, usually I want to make sure it has some kind of percussive tops in it, like open hi-hats and things, just a little bit of something that's got a little bit of a groove to it. Um, and that's almost as a DJ tool, whether it's a full track or even just a loop or something. Uh, because when you're in a situation like that too, you have a long breakdown like that. And then it, what's worse than you not knowing what to do is your crowd not knowing what to do with that time. So at least as long as there's something percussive happening, if you had dancers, they still have a ticking tempo to dance to. Um, you know what I mean? There's just a little bit more of that top end energy there. Uh, so I, I almost always have something like that offhand. Uh, that doesn't necessarily tell you what you should be doing in the meantime, but it helps a little bit with that uh, awkwardness. I do the same and, thing, liking uh, with the loops, you know, adding yeah. that percussion. So it's not such a huge breakdown. Not with every track, though, because you want something to break down, you know, to kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Part of that is just so I, I I'm going to echo both of you and and say that. Um, in addition to that, sometimes you don't want like a full um, percussive element going, you know, at full like EQ volume or whatever. So sometimes it's it's nice to take like those percussive elements or a loop or something like that and then add some color or add some light effects to it. So whether it's like a little bit of reverb or, you know, some, tor some sort of a delay and then take out like the top end and just kind of give some sort of like a chunky undertone or something, but, you know, gives you something to play with um, during uh, that, that time makes you look busy or, and feel busy, but, you know, um, but you, it gives you something to, actually still add to the mix um but conversely i mean at the same time you know music is music it's written the way that it's written and 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 to i think i think david just said you, you can't do that all the time so um you know sometimes it is it's just a matter of being patient and and uh letting the music do what it does and uh you know just kind of reading your crowd and and trying to feel that out and and make some sort of a, a connection um you know, so whether it's, you know, fingers in the air, or, you know, or something, but or, it is, it's, you know, it's, or turn around and or turn around and take a drink of your vodka. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely the hardest, uh, hardest thing for a dancer on the dance floor to do something without a beat. Correct. So yeah, you're stuck with them staring at you or not dancing. We did. Um, you remember when we had Sasha at the Red Cheetah? in 2000 mm -hmm. and i'll never forget it they had they had dancers you know go-go dancers on each side and it was typically a top 40 club but when the music would break down they had no idea what to do so they just kind of stood there and just like, <laughs> like what do i do you know so He's yeah playing sometimes, expander and they're all just standing around <laughs> confused <laughs> so sometimes it is it's good to add like a small percussive element like it it, it about at about half volume yeah, it's right. Track right. to you know not over maintain energy. Yep. All right. This next one comes from Christopher L. What was the longest set you prepared for, and how do you prepare for sets? Uh, now we just posted an interview with Mr. Turlington here about preparing for sets, so I'm sure um, he'll have some input on that, and then we can refer you to that episode. As far as the longest set you prepared for, I'll jump in on that. Um, I would say the longest sets that I play, I don't prepare for. 
Um, so if I'm playing for 10 hours, I'm not planning that shit out, for example. Um, that would be like a house party with buddies overnight kind of situation. Um, longest set I've uh, quote unquote professionally planned for, I would say maybe five or six hours. And that would be like a mobile gig. Um, and by preparing, it's like, okay, I have some stuff in this category and some stuff in this category and this BPM is close to this BPM and I've got them in little buckets and I've got a sound that I know this crowd's going to like. Uh, so it's, it's prepared in that sense, but it's not like this track goes into this track and goes into this track. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as like David, the artist, um, I rarely play a set longer than an hour or two out anywhere. So. I guess that would be my answer there. <laughs> Anybody yeah. ever playing for any really long sets? No. I, not a long set, but I will, I'll go back to 2012 when I was in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico with mm -hmm. Prime Social Group and they throw a festival called Electro Beach down there and every, every night was a headliner, you know, so it's like college spring break down there and every club that was going on, we had a headliner in, right? So Monday would be, Steve Aoki, Tuesday would be Avicii, Wednesday, Laidback Luke, Thursday, Calvin Harris, so on and so on and so on. And I played probably about 14 or 15 times down there. So I had to put, you know, different sets together because each, each one of those was either opening the room or direct support or different artists. You know what yeah. I mean? Like when I was opening for Paul Van Dyke, I got to play – as deep as I really wanted to because he was more trans, but all the other guys are all the top 40, uh, you know, top 100 EDM, you know, but I had, I'm the type of person that I don't like to play the same things. So I have, I'd like to go back in and switch my sets up. Um, as far as length, uh, the most I've ever played is out, out is two hours. And I don't really plan sets. I put, you know, 20, 30 tracks in a crate. And I have my few that I start off with to kind of create that vibe. Yeah. But then from there, it's, you know, it's freestyle. Yeah. Um, if we can refer back to, um, uh, um, are we, well, we, we, so where there was a after party episode um, where we talked about me preparing for uh, uh, the, um, the Paul Oakenfold show back in September. Um, and then we just recently recorded as yeah, it, it just published. Hit? Oh, okay. So yeah, it, it's just published where uh, we did a recap of that. So um, the short version is, is it's pretty much what Tony just said for me is that, um, you know, I put together a folder of what my main stuff is like, what's the main idea here, you know, so it could be 20, 30, 40, 50 tracks Am I going to play all those? Probably not, but like it gives me a solid backbone of, of where am I returning back to if, if, I, if I get too far off the beaten path. And then it's I'll have a security playlist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I'll have like two or three other folders of, okay, if then else, right? So if the, if the crowd is feeling this, then I can go here. If they're not, then I can come back to the main list or I can go over here to this other list. And each one of those will probably have 10, 15, 20 tracks each in those. So am I going to play all that? No, but it gives a, a, a pretty rough idea of, you know, how I'm going to uh, take things in, in certain directions. Um, but as, I, 
I put a lot of thought into, you know, what, what is my role in, in each show? What's the experience that we're trying to get to? Um, I, I go for a lot of themes um, that, you know, I'm probably way overthinking them. You know, so like if I'm if I'm picking out tracks because they've got, you know, some heady or some trippy type of like lyrics or um, or samples or things like that. And, you know, just things to kind of play around with people's minds or, you know, play around with their, you know, their uninhibited states, you know, <laughs> and depending on where you're at. So I, I, I do. I put a lot of uh, crazy thought into that stuff. Uh, all of my uh mixes that i've ever put out like you know demos and uh, demo cds and stuff like that it's always been like uh, a full-on like i'm trying to tell a story so it's not like i just pulled out you know 12 or 15 tracks and just went to town it's always you know i'm i'm putting these things together in very intentional ways um the longest uh, that I, i don't i can't say for sure that i've ever planned out a long set um, when I was very early on, I put, you know, as a young DJ, I did, I, 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 when I very first started out, I would plan out entire set list. I'm playing for an hour. This is what I'm playing. I can't deviate from that. But as I, but, you know, as you mature and you get into, uh, reading crowds and, and being more dynamic, um, I can't say that I ever planned, a, a trip Turlington or digital psychosis set like that. Um, but going back to the point that you made, David, um, you know, for a mobile gig or something like that, or especially a wedding, I mean, you have to plan those types of things out. So, um, and Mo, um, you know, he, he's gone way above and beyond. Like he, he's taken it down to a science of even asking the question, what do you not want me to play? (laughs) You know, and stuff like that. So he gives his clients a questionnaire ahead of time, which is a really good idea. Yep. Yep. All right. Next up, uh, we have one coming from our friend B Funk, who was recently on the show. He wants to know when do you upgrade your gear? When it breaks? When a new version comes out? Or in other words, what motivates you? Being forced or enticed? When do you upgrade your gear? I would say when you can, not when you want to. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say for me, it's a matter of uh, when FOMO and affordability kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know the supply demand curve but one is FOMO and the other one is affordability um uh you know so I mean there there I've always got a big wish list of stuff that I would love to have but um but I prioritize it based on what my what problem am I trying to solve by upgrading you know, so yeah. I, I do tend to hold on to stuff a little bit more longer because the stuff that we, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is not cheap. So, um, you know, unless there's just some functionality that is going to drastically improve my workflow or it's integral to how I play uh, going forward, um, I tend to hold on to stuff. Like I've got uh, DJSZ over here. Um I, I've I've thrown it around about you know in my head about uh, uh, selling it and upgrading to something, um, even like that Denon um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, all-in-one and a standalone piece, and um, I, I've thrown it around. I've thrown all of that around, but at the end of the day, like my SZ still works with my record box license. So, you know, I can still play on that just like I would, you yeah. know, or very similarly, like I would on a, on a Nexus setup in a club. So, 
there's no real need for me to uh, go out and spend that kind of money. So, you know, um, eventually I, I, I'll upgrade when, when uh, that happens. <laughs> Affordability and FOMO, you know, <laughs> crosses over. Yeah, I think the only thing I would jump in there on is um, I, I agree. I hold on to stuff for, for quite a long time. I played on a Control S4 for like a million and a half years um, because I had no real reason to upgrade. Um, I think most people upgrade before they reach the limits of the hardware. Um, so I, I draw a lot of parallels to cars, right? I'm a car guy. And it's like I could go and pay the premium for a brand new car that nobody else has touched with all the options. Or I can wait an iteration or two and really get the one that I want that's going to serve my needs and really learn it in and out, you know, whether that means actually buying used or buying the previous model. For example, I bought XDJ 1000s, the Mark I version, uh, because they work in tractor HID mode, uh, which Tony likes to use, which I like to use sometimes. And so I knew it would be functional for that. The Mark IIs don't support that tractor. Plus they were cheaper. Plus I could get them refurbed. So, you know, I, I do that whole analysis thing. Like, is it right. worth it for me to buy this? And what's the way I can get the best deal out of it? Should I right. look at eBay? Or should I like whatever? So I do all that. Uh, the one thing that I have determined just kind of as a personal choice that I've decided I'm not going to sell my techs like ever um, unless I'm replacing them with other techs, I guess. Same. Same. So um, yeah, you I can just see mine. Promise, yeah, yeah <laughs> I can see yours in the background there. Yeah, um, I've I've owned these since 1998. Um, you know, and they've been they were beat up and all of that stuff. So I I think it was probably five years ago. I tore them apart. I had them uh, powder coated, and I totally redid the uh, all the LED lighting and like yeah, you know, internally grounded. I I mean I did all of the all of the things to them. And, um, that's when I, cause I, I, I kicked around selling them as well for a while. But, uh, once I did all of that, then I was like, nope, these are mine. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> all right. Next one is from, oh, I think this is our final one. This comes from our friend DJ Serato. How long do we plan on being DJs? And when are you guys throwing a PDJ party? <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll do the last part first, um, throwing a passionate DJ party. So the last time we did that in an official capacity was probably the one year anniversary. So 2015, 20, I think we called it 2014 was the one year anniversary, 14 or 15 anyway. So it's been a while. Um, but this is something that behind the scenes that I've been poking Tony about a little bit like hey are you interested like do you want to help me like throw a passionate DJ event really? no pressure no pressure we, we, when? We've been, there's been whispers <laughs> <laughs> but only whispers so we we have some ideas but um you know it has to be the right reason and uh, we have to give Tony a good reason to do it because he books a million different shows and so we've got to make sure it's worth his time worth our time and something that's kind of in brand for passionate DJ that you know, it makes DJs feel special in some kind of way. So we've got some ideas kicking around, but nothing official yet. Um, we will make that happen. 
I guess I just assumed he meant like a club it's, night or, you something. know, I mean, people that see this awesome studio can only see this corner, but it's a really big room that we could put a good amount of people in to do a small little, uh, that's right. You know, yeah, better say, I, I was going to say, I think cover and take out an insurance policy. <laughs> right. I think how, how many times have we talked about doing boiler room in your, in, in, in your studio? So, yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to, that's another point. We're definitely going to be doing some more live mixes and, and stuff like that. People are asking, us like why don't you ever play we want to see you play you want to see other mixes and we've got a great setup for it now so yeah yeah we're, we're definitely going to do more actual live things um I'm excited i can't wait for it how long do we plan on being djs fellas we'll we'll end on this note as long as i can stand and hear well actually i don't even have to stand as long as i can hear yep i mean that's uh Good friend of uh, In The Groove, um, his name is Don. Uh, he uh, went by Dr. Trance. He was out of Toronto. And, uh, I mean, that guy, uh, I mean, he had to have been 70-something by mm-hmm. the time he passed away, uh, just within the last couple of years. And, I mean, he, he, he ran One Groove Radio, all of that stuff. I mean, he, he's where we got the idea for uh, doing boat parties. Uh, down in Cincinnati where we, we rent out river paddle or the river boats with the paddles and all that. And we put two, three, 400 people on, on boats and do shows down there. Uh, he's the one we got the idea from because they would do that uh, in Toronto and go out on the lake. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, my, my, my good friend, Jason, his, his mom, uh, she, she's been playing, you know, she didn't even learn until she was into her fifties or sixties. Like, so, you know, for me, I just, uh, yeah, I mean, as long as, as long as it's still got me and if, as long as I can still hear and the music speaks to me and, uh, and people will give me the opportunity to, to play for them, uh, I'll, I'm, I'm in it. When Tony said, as long as I can hear, I almost said, this has been the Passionate DJ Podcast. That's such a good ending line. <laughs> right. I mean, really. Trip ruined it. <laughs> no, no. I do have more to say on it, but it was just such a good, I mean, that's a great way to, to put it because right. um, one great thing about being a DJ nowadays, and I, you know, I, this is kind of my hobby horse as of late. There's so many different ways you can get involved in DJing now. So you can do it, you can, do it in your garage or your basement and set up a camera and live stream. You can build a brand doing that. You can play out places. You can, you know, there's so many different options, even if you just throw up Facebook live or something. And so, um, and a lot of what I get out of DJing has only part of it is, is the performance uh, to an audience, if that makes sense. So a lot of times I just go out to my decks and I play and get lost in my own head and get lost in my own music and do this for its own sake so i don't for as long as that's fulfilling something in my heart i'm going to keep doing that and the nice thing about it is um even if i'm you know i have back problems i've got all kinds of you know issues like that and if it gets to the point where i can't go out there for and play a three-hour set or go on the dance floor for hours at a time i still have djing it's not going anywhere you know what i mean and that's kind of it's the beautiful thing about it is I can always get lost in this music. And just like Tony said, as long as I, even if I have to sit, I can I mean, take into consideration marshmallow just played in front of 3 million people that weren't even in front of him. <laughs> That's right. In the middle of a video game. So That's even, right. there's always going to be an audience. And, right. you know, 
right, fellas. Well, I guess that's a good place to wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for joining me. And uh, hopefully we'll stay warm and safe here in our cozy homes and hide from the weather. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tomato soup and real cheese. I was going to say, I'm literally watching the snow just pound. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas. Well, this has been fun. Thank you so much. Keep on spinning. And this has been the Passionate DJ Podcast. Claim the camera back. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, stop that. It doesn't make a click when I turn the mic on and off, does it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a there's a mute. You know, you can click in the window. Oh, that's right. There's a mute on the screen. Yeah. And three, two, one. Uh. <laughs>